Good morning, everybody. Please can I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 if you have your Bible with you. Uh, the text will also be on the screen if you don't. I loved the words that were spoken over us as we were worshipping. The Lord has promised good things for you. He's promised you good things. We can't grow, we must never grow tired of hearing those truths. The Lord has promised you good things. And his word assures us of his promises. And his word assures, of his, assures us of his love, assures us of his favor uh, upon us. And I believe today, as we go through this chapter, that the Lord wants to strengthen us, wants to affirm us, wants to edify us, wants to stir our hearts again. And uh, we're about to come into a few feisty chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, given to help the church to thrive, given to help the church be all that the Lord wants us to be. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 together. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write, wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sent to us to achieve its purpose. We thank you as certainly as the rains fell this morning, 
as we heard the clap of thunder. We know you're sovereign over every drop of rain and over every word of scripture to produce a harvest. And so, Lord, I ask you that today, as we think upon some challenging scripture, may we have a posture of humility and faith. May you work in your church and in this church to achieve a harvest for your glory. We, we ask you, Lord, to protect our hearts from the evil one who'd want to pick at this seed. Let it be sown into rich, fertile soil. And Lord Jesus, may we adore and glorify you with all our hearts because you are so wonderful. What a wonderful, glorious Savior you are. May our eyes be upon you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to start by asking those of you who consider yourselves to be Christians, which will be the majority probably in this room, I want to ask you, what's so great about being a Christian? What would you say is the great thing about being the Christian? So, so as you become a Christian, you become a Christian because you hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You're hearing great news. You're hearing um, an invitation that's issued in the gospel. And with that comes many gifts. Many things are promised to us. What would you say is the greatest gift? <laughs> say that again. Hope and a future. Brilliant answer. We have hope and a future. Any other suggestions as we're doing a bit of group participation? Does anyone have any other suggestions? Unconditional love. What was the other one about the father? The love of a father. Thank you, Fred. Peace. Forgiveness. Grace. Hallelujah. This wasn't what I was expecting was going to happen. See, this, <laughs> this is the problem with rhetorical questions. No, no, I love it. Thank you. Hey, we could spend the whole morning doing this. We could. And the reality is there are, there are an abundance of gifts that come to us through the gospel. And we've just mentioned a whole load. Hope of a future. Hope beyond the grave. Praise God. Hope that when we die, we'll be resurrected as surely as Jesus Christ has been resurrected. Hope that every tear will be wiped from our eye and all pain and suffering will cease once and for all time. Hope that this earth that is groaning will be made new and perfect and glorious. Hope that you will see again people whom you love that have been lost. Hope of seeing Jesus Christ face to face. Hope of this glorious, wonderful eternity. I would love just to spend the next 40 minutes just carrying on like that, right? But I do need to deal with this text. But the reason I start, I start this way is because I would just challenge us that we can sometimes stop too far short when it comes to the things that we're promised through the gospel. What do I mean? Well, someone cried out, forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah, that's true. But when Jesus, in John 14, that we've already heard read out, he didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to forgiveness of sins except through me. Didn't say that. 
Though through Jesus Christ we receive forgiveness of sins. In, in John 14, verse 6, he also didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to a hope for the future through me. Or no one comes to a hope of a glorified body through me. Or no one comes to the hope of reconciliation with your brother through me. Or hope of seeing someone you love died alive again through me. But what he did say is, no one comes to the Father but through me. So I would put to you that the greatest gift of the gospel is found in coming to know the love of the Heavenly Father. And the obstacles that separate us from knowing the love of the Heavenly Father are dealt with through the death of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of our sins, the opening of blind eyes, the throwing off of chains, the being saved and forgiven, all of these things, the hatred, the darkness, are cast aside that a clear path would be made for us to come into the intimate, eternal embrace of Jesus' Father. And so that my identity isn't fundamentally that I'm forgiven or that I have a glorious future or that I'm a, even a brother but that I'm a son and that you're a son and a daughter of your father in heaven. So I just think all, there are so many things that come, so many things that come to us and, and wonderful celebration of those things and all of those were brilliant answers and brilliant responses but I want to challenge you I want to challenge you. I believe Jesus would want to challenge you today and say that that he came for you to know his Father and to know the love of the Father. Because how we understand primarily where the gospel is taking us is going to affect how you and I view sin in our lives and sin in the church. So if we think that actually Christianity is just about the forgiveness of my sins, and I'll keep on sinning because I can keep on being forgiven, because there's forgiveness. And often we, we will talk about grace accordingly. What is so amazing about grace is that it brings us to the Father. Grace is how we come to know the Father. And through that grace, our sins are forgiven, and through that grace, our death is taken from us, our punishment is taken from us so that we might eternally enjoy being God's children. We are in this church of people that sit under God's word. And so God's word is given to us that we might tell the world how to know God and to how to be forgiven the gospel, but also God's word is given to us that we might know what it means for, for us to flourish in this life, for you to flourish as a Christian, for us to flourish as a church. Do you want to flourish? Do you want to live a rich life? Anyone other than Dave and a few at the back? <laughs> right? We want the life that Jesus said He's come to give us. So Jesus said, I have come that you may have life 
And then he goes even further, no, have it in abundance. The evil one has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So, as we go through the Bible, and as we go through a book like 1 Corinthians, and as we go through chapters 5, 6, 7, through this letter, we're going to hear things said that are going to be offensive to the ears of those who haven't met Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And you've heard it said from this platform before, I've said it before, we build our thinking, our theology, all of our teaching upon the word of God. It's bigger, it's greater. What shapes your worldview? What shapes your morality? What shapes your convictions? You go, well, I'm shaped by what generally people believe in society. Which society? Well, this one. What about the society 20 years ago? I don't care. I live in this society. Well, what about a society in 20 years' time? I don't care. I live in this society. But the laws will change. And the convictions of this society will change. They're transient and they evolve. Anyone around 20 years ago? Hands up. Right, a few of you. I'll stop there. I was going to keep going by decades. <laughs> Have things changed in our society in terms of what we believe to be right and wrong? Have they changed in 20 years? Do you expect that they might change in 20 years' time? So can you be confident that our society today has got it right? I put to you, you probably can't. So where do you find your confidence for what's right and what's wrong? We say unashamedly, here we stand, I can do no other, so help me God. As Martin Luther famously said, as his life was in risk, at risk as he believed God's word. So that's the preamble, not just to this chapter, but to the next few chapters as we come to deal with matters that our society holds very dearly. Matters to do with sexuality, sexual ethics, sexual morality. And God has things to say to us about flourishing, both individually and together as a church. So firstly, what's happening here? What's going on? What is it that Paul's rebuking? Well, right at the beginning, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the pagans or the Gentiles. And you're proud a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Almost certainly this would be not his natural mother, but his stepmother because of how it's put here. But this is a type of sin, he's saying, that even in wider pagan society, which was rotten, they would be shaking their heads at and thinking, oh gosh, what are you doing? And not only is this thing being tolerated in this church here in Corinth, but they're boasting about it. They're arrogant about it. They want the world to know, hey, we've got this guy in our church and he's sleeping with his stepmother and he's in our church. That's what they're doing. And Paul's like, what? What's happened to you? How have you allowed this to happen? What is going on? You've got to understand that 
I mean, we'd agree our society is pretty broken and pretty confused when it comes to matters of sexuality. This was a very dark period in history that we're thinking about here. Very, very dark. All kinds of wickedness is going on. The abuse of women, the objectification of women in a, in a vile way and of children. The kind of pain and suffering that comes with that. And the church is meant to be a place of refuge, of healing. A place where broken people can come and find I'm loved and helped through the horrors of what I've experienced and I find a God in this church who not only sees my suffering and cares for me but says to me I've suffered as well and I find the gospel hope comes to cleanse me and to wash me. That's what the church should be, a city upon a hill, a light that's shining. And this church is nothing of the sort. Now it's interesting as we go through these chapters, we find all kinds of other sins are going on here. We find that brothers are taking each other to court, suing each other within the church. We find that there are many who are going to the temple prostitutes. We find that they're having communion and literally they're getting drunk as they're drinking the wine. They gather to take the Lord's Supper as a meal, and before the poor have come, they've eaten all the food. And yet, it's only this sin raised in chapter 5 for which the Apostle Paul says, you've got to cast this man out. It's interesting. Only this one does he say, excommunicate, cast him out, hand him over to Satan, now, that, that, is, that is essentially him saying, you let him carry on in his worldly sin. You, you, you cast him out. Now, a good question to then ask is, why? Why does he draw attention and why does he respond so strongly to this one? Well, the clue's here in the text. It's not even tolerated among the pagans. In other words, what he's saying is, implicitly, there's a greater righteousness even in this world that you're meant to be reaching than there is even in this church. It's outrageous. I mean, what, what possible message have you got for this world that you're, you're meant to be reaching? Why would they listen to you? So you can imagine it. Someone goes, hey, um, Jesus Christ is the light of the world and, and you're in darkness and, and I want to invite you to come along to my church because I want you to come and find healing and broken and healing from your brokenness and your darkness. And they say, okay, well, which church do you go to? Um, Corinthians? <laughs> and they're like, okay, so aren't you the church that posted on Instagram about some guy that's sleeping with his father's wife? Yeah. I'm not going to go to your church. That's, that's disgusting. So why would they... Why would anyone want to, to go to this? What, what message, what possible message does it have? This church has lost its relevance. It's lost its message. It's lost its witness. It's damaging the gospel. It's damaging the unity which is within the church. And so Paul takes strong action. He says, you are to cast this one out. You are to excommunicate them from your midst. 
The hypocrisy. The hypocrisy. And I know some of you are carrying deep pain in your life from hypocrisy in the church. And I know there are some of you here who are coming along and you're barely able to come along because you've witnessed this kind of hypocrisy in the church. And it's utterly deplorable and unacceptable. Utterly wrong. And of course, I applaud you for coming and, and still holding on to Jesus, who is the one that we point to, who is the one that we draw people's eyes to. Why do we even exist? Why does the church even exist if not to draw people to seeing Jesus, the healer, seeing Jesus, the pure, spotless lamb? And I want to speak to you. I don't know how many of you that would resonate with. I'm certain there are several. Just want to speak to, to you and say, I am confident of healing for you. And I'm confident that God knows your heart and sees your pain. And as we think of the picture of Jesus Christ hanging He suffers and he dies and he hangs there and he's judged and he's condemned for hypocrisy and double standards and bad leadership. And it's tragic in in the nation and in the world today when the headlines are filled with hypocrisy in the church. Now we're going to come on and look at this a little bit more towards the end of the chapter because Paul is really dealing with this issue. So how, how is it that the church had got to this place? How, how, how is this being justified? How is this going on? Why is this going on? What's happened? So how have they come to this point where they feel like they're able to go, we've got this guy in the church and he's behaving like this and we're, we're arrogant about it? What's happened? We're not given an explicit answer in the text, but it is certainly implicit. We're not told they started teaching this and consequently they ended up here. What I would say is clearly implicit is a cheap grace. A cheap grace. Grace that doesn't take you to the Father. Grace that stops Way short, way, way, way short, way short even than the, than the cross. It's a cheap grace. It's an idea that's, so here's how the, the evil one will deceive us. And says present, so often when you come to church, you say, hey, don't sin. Unless we, unless we clearly teach what sin is, people will just hear, don't eat too much chocolate. Oh, this is the problem. We've got, to, we've got to help people understand what sin is. Sin is ultimately the deception that robs you of the true happiness that your soul longs for, that you were created to enjoy. Sin robs you from enjoying the intimacy with the Father. And not only that, it casts you aside, says, go and hide and be in shame, go away from God, whereas the Father says, come to me, 
the power of what my son did on the cross is sufficient for the vilest offender who truly believes. You're always urged to come. Come, come, come. There is grace for the victim and there's grace for the abuser. There's grace for all. Sin steals, robs us, is a thief. We shouldn't think of it as something other than that. It's all right if I just keep on doing a little bit of sin because there's grace. Right? That, that kind of gospel is, where does, that originates in Satan. That's, that's the rhetoric of evil and of darkness. This is what the great uh, preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, this is how he put it. This is graphic. This is graphic, but I certainly think we could do sometimes with hearing words like these. Salvation by the death of Christ makes sin so loathsome that the saved one cannot take it up, even its name, without dread. He looks upon it as we should regard a knife rusted with gore wherewith some villain had killed our mother, our wife, our child. Could we play with it? Could we bear it about our persons or endure it in our sight? No accursed thing stained with the heart's blood of my beloved. I would fain fling thee into the bottomless abyss Sin is that dagger which stabbed the Savior's heart, and henceforth it must be the abomination of every man who has been redeemed by the atoning sacrifice. You think that's extreme? Jesus said, hey, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Now, we know he isn't literally expecting us to do this, but what Jesus is trying to do is the same thing that Spurgeon is doing here, which is to arrest our attention, to snap us out of this deception. You've got to understand that we come under this deception. The powers of darkness, which are so evident and rife in our society, come to trick us and to deceive us and would come into the church so that in the church you would even find these types of things happening in this church. Remember how it started, this letter, to the saints in Corinth. These are Christians. And indeed, this man who's behaving this way, he's a brother. He claims to be a Christian. And when he says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved, this church discipline, this excommunication, is done for the sake of the brother who's in sin, as well as for the sake of the church, as well as for the sake of the church's witness. There's compassion. Cheap grace, cheap grace is forgiveness without the cross. It is grace without Christ. True grace is when Christ is all. And forgiveness is cross-centered, soaked in his blood. So that when I come to God and I ask for forgiveness, I would see Jesus bleeding for that forgiveness. It's not cheap. It's 
It's a price beyond our comprehension. The Father paid for you to be forgiven. Why? So that you can know the intimate embrace of the Father. In Christ, in his righteousness, in his spotlessness. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, he bled and he died for me. Forgiveness cost Christ his very life. So what does healthy church discipline look like as I come to conclude? Well, let me ask you this. Is there a place for church discipline today? Is there, should these kind of things, should there be a, 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 a situation or a scenario where we would act in a similar way? You bet. You bet. But it should be very rare. In a church which is regularly preaching the gospel, regularly breaking bread, regularly pointing us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where we are regularly being urged to confess our sins and to repent of our sins. And I think we do that here, and we should probably do it more. But where we take sin seriously and where we hold Christ up and the, the glory of Christ's death, resurrection up, and we, and we teach faithfully what the Scriptures have to say, then it should be rare. But if we care about one another if we care about the unity of our church, and if we care about our witness to the world outside us, then yes, in a scenario like this, where you have an unrepentant man or woman indulging in immorality, in this case we've got sexual immorality, there are other sins, right? There are other sins, but there's something particular about this sin which is highlighted because it really is the idol of the world. And it really is a, a source of so much pain and so much conflict. This is what it says in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all instructing us to deny godliness, to say no to godliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. I want you just to note, so this is about the grace of God. Grace of God comes bringing salvation for all people, he says, and then instructing us to say no to sin. The order of that is crucial, the grace of God must save you first before it teaches you. Grace saves us before grace teaches us, but grace, having saved us, will teach you. Will teach you. In other words, you can't just say, Jesus be my savior, but I'll be my Lord. But Jesus can't be my Lord unless he's my savior. So if Jesus has come and saved me from my sin, he's pulled me out of the grave. He's washed me clean by his blood. He's declared me not guilty. He said, you are not guilty of your sin, Tim. You are forgiven. Now, come on, let's do life together. And I say, no, 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 I don't want that. I'd far rather just carry on drowning in my sin. 
The grace of God must save you, but it will then teach you. I want to remind you of the Exodus. There's reference here to the Passover. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, not with the old leaven, not with sin, not with evil, with the leaven of malice, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. I just want to briefly remind you of the Exodus. The Jews were in slavery to Egypt. They were enslaved to Egypt. And they're led out through the sea through glorious, spectacular power. And then the law comes. Did the law come before? No. It came after. Before, they're helpless, they're slaves, they can't do anything. God leads them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They are led into salvation. And now as a free, saved people, no longer in the bondage of slavery and sin, the law comes. This is what it means to flourish. This is what it means to be my people. This is what it means to say to the world who I am and what I have done. And the, and the church gets it very wrong when we put law upon people that don't know Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't, verse 10, I don't mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. And then he goes on to say, um, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Here's a massive problem is that the church, broadly speaking, spends too much time judging those outside and allowing too much compromise within. So if you're not a Christian here today, we have no business to tell you how to live your life. We have no business to to judge you or to comment on how you're living your life. No business whatsoever. Our business, as far as you're concerned, is to tell you about how Jesus loves you to the extent that he went to the cross and suffered in your place. That's our message for you, right? If you're not a Christian here today, we want to say to you that when you die, you can know everlasting, glorious life. All of the things that you heard shouted out earlier, a future, a hope, forgiveness from sins, you can know God as your father and you can know this because Jesus has dealt with all of the issues that separated you. He dealt with them at the cross, giving you access to God. That's our message for you. Not stop behaving in this way or stop doing these things. What's that? That's legalism. It's dead. That's not our business. Shame on the church that spends more time calling out the sins of the world than it does its own sins. And that kind of hypocrisy damages us. Paul says we are required to judge those who are in the church. We are called to hold one another accountable. We are called to love one another. And where we're in sin, to bring the truth with love, to care for one another, that we would enjoy this grace that takes us to the Father, that we wouldn't allow any sin to hold us back from enjoying that freedom and that gift. Amen? Amen. So where we challenge one another in the context of the church, let's not forget what it's ultimately all about. It's not just about behaving well. 
It's not just about appearing to be more moral. It's not just about being good. It's about knowing and enjoying and delighting in the love of God our Father. And sin wants to steal that privilege from you. So I'm loving you as my sister, and I'm loving you as my brother, and you're loving me as your brother, if you call it out when you see it, with love. And we're also loving the world around us, so that we can legitimately say, come, you who are hurting, come find healing. Come, you who are thirsty, come and drink. Come, you who are hungry, come and eat. Come to Jesus. He says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and find rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the verse just before, he says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And to whomever the Son reveals the Father. True rest for our souls is knowing the Father. That's why you exist and that's what God wants to lead you to. That's why we take sin seriously. That's why church discipline happens. And it's, as I say, this type of thing, thank God, is rare. But we must do it where there is persistent, unrepentant sin of this nature. If we're asking you all to be without sin, none of us would be here. We all sin daily. But the heart of the person that truly sees what Christ has done says, oh, Lord, Please would you forgive me of my sin. Thank you for paying the price and what suffering. But thank you. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. I'm forgiven. You've done it. And I don't need to be under any condemnation or under any guilt. You've forgiven me of those things. You've dealt with those things too. What a gift that is. Isn't it? What a gift. Why don't you stand? I invite the band to come. When it says don't even eat, I've just seen something in my notes that I've missed. Don't worry, I'm not about to do another whole 20 minutes of... <laughs> Look, that's in, what does he mean when he says do not even eat with this person? It's in the context of the Lord's Supper. When the church gathered, they had a whole meal together. It was the gathering of the church around the supper. He's saying, no, you mustn't, you mustn't permit that person to come and eat that meal. It doesn't mean that when you see them in the street, you have to walk in the opposite direction. Do you understand that? This, is, this verse has been taken out of context. The context is the Lord's Supper. The context is the gathered church. And as in 2 Corinthians, there's this brother who's restored to the church. And commentators would say, it's, it's this guy. He gets restored. There's reconciliation. There's hope. There's hope. For those that leave, for those that are in sin, there's hope. Why don't we close our eyes? I want to pray for uh, several categories of people. I want to pray firstly for those that I mentioned earlier on, and you're feeling hurt by church hypocrisy. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for those of you who haven't yet found Jesus Christ to be your Savior. I want to pray for you. And I pray for the rest of us that we would know what it is to live with Christ as our Lord, leading us in paths of righteousness. Leading us in paths of righteousness. He goes before you. He's ahead of you. He's behind you. So firstly, I just pray, Lord, for healing for those who right now are dealing with real pain from bad leadership, from bad 
from hypocrisy in the church. I pray would you, Holy Spirit, come and bring healing to them right now in Jesus' name. Healing. I pray be set free in Jesus' name from that right now. If that's you, in Jesus' name be set free from that right now. Look to Jesus as your great leader. Look to Jesus as the great example. Secondly, Lord, I just ask for anyone here today who hasn't yet felt their heart stirred by your spirit to receive you as Savior, would you do that now? Would they know sins forgiven? Would they know the way to the Father laid out before them? And would they know the arms of the Father around them as a precious child? And then thirdly, for each of us, Lord, would you protect us from the evil one? Lead us not into temptation. May we take our sin seriously. May we kill sin in our lives. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Puritan John Owen said, help us, Lord, to have a right perspective. Help us to throw it out, to fling it away. May we enjoy the gift of knowing the Father. And may that be our true heart's delight. We ask these things in your holy name and for your glory. Amen. Let's worship.